Hi there, Duncan Green here with the roundup of two weeks of posts on From Poverty to Power. Rushing around getting ready for a trip to Papua New Guinea. Talk a little bit more uh, about that later, but let's crack on. Um, start off with links I liked. Uh, one I would point to is some more numbers on the average number of children per woman and just how much it's falling. Globally, it's down from 1950 to 2021, the most recent figures. It's dropped from nearly five, 4.9, to just over two, 2.3. So that's globally. But when you look at the particular, yeah, particular countries, it's amazing, quite ex extraordinary demographic shift like nothing I think the world's ever seen. South Korea from six children per woman to 0.9. So, you know, population must be shrinking. Bangladesh, 6.3 children per woman to two. Um, even somewhere like Zimbabwe, 7.1 to 3.5. So, you know, although there's still lots of people saying too many people, too many people, in some countries, the problem is going to be running out of people, not, not having too many. And that's just a really fascinating demographic shift we're looking at there. In particular, countries like South Korea are going to have to get over their opposition to migration and start allowing people to come in, not least to look after all the old people like me. So, um, you know, definitely don't want any uh, ban on migrants uh, 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 on that sort of issue. Next post was uh, Stefan Durkin, uh, who was advisor to the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which is a, a merger between the Foreign Off, Off Ministry and DFID, the Development Ministry. Um, he's now been spat out by the numerous changes in, in the government over the last few months. Um, and he wrote a, a really good Twitter thread, and I found out how to, how to unroll a Twitter thread. So I'm getting dead funky on the, on the technology and turned it into a blog with Stefan's permission. And it's basically a kind of a, he's talking to the new Minister for Development within the FCDO, Andrew Mitchell, who used to be the Secretary of State for International Development. Um, and he, he, he doesn't pull any punches. He's normally quite discreet, Stefan. And I was quite struck by how vehement he was in this. So here we go. Welcome, Mr. Mitchell, but you have your work cut out. All eyes will be on the budget. They are in an absolute mess. A first priority will have to be to bring sanity as they no longer serve development, nor make any sense from a value for money point of view. And this is not simply about 0 0.3, 0 0.5 or 0.7. At DFID, Andrew Mitchell focused strongly on results for the poor and value for money. At the moment, the way budgets are handled delivers neither. Within the fixed 0.5% ODA budgets, that's 0.5% of gross national income, the UK is now spending more of its development budget inside the UK than inside poor developing countries. One area in which costs of ODA are soaring are refugee and asylum seeker costs, mainly for Ukraine. Likely at least 3 billion for 2022, if not up to 5 billion, all of course from within that 0.5. Of course, we should help them, but entirely on the back of the poor in Africa and Asia. The development spending experts inside FCDO, whose expertise was built up during Mr. Mitchell's stint as development secretary, had no say over this at all. The Treasury charges it all to ODA, and it is the Home Office's poor management of accommodation costs in the UK that made these costs escalate. Again, why at the expense of the poor in Africa and Asia? 
Then we have made ourselves a global laughing stock in the development community by using accountancy tricks to ensure we spend less on actual development than we claim. For example, charging all costs to ODA of the Homes for Ukraine programme. We are the only G7 country to charge this against aid. Or for example, counting special drawing rights, which is the IMF currency, as ODA. Again, probably the only G7 country doing this. And then endless attempts to charge most of our foreign policy budget in lower middle income countries to the aid budget, e.g. for UK trade and business promotion, diplomats' wages, or even for security cooperation. The US never charges this to ODA. I didn't know any of this. This is quite shocking. The final way in which the ODA budget has been butchered is by the insistence of giving far too much as capital and financial transactions, with the latter largely in the form of capital to CDC, uh, the Commonwealth Development Corporation, renamed Britain Investment something, BII these days. By the way, I think CDC has done a rather good job and they have a role, but this use of capital within ODA budgets is not driven by some genuine commitment to invest, but a trick to make it look good on the books of the UK. I've never seen a proper value for money calculation to show why this large share is optimal for the UK's development spending. The problem is it leaves little cash for things you really need now to make a difference. So what to do? And then Stefan sets out a few principles. Principle one, get a defined and protected development budget that's focused on the poorest countries. The principle two, get a humanitarian budget that's elastic, well-funded to start with, but commit to expand if Ukraine and similar costs escalate. Principle three, make support to Ukraine an explicit, positive, budgeted decision to help, not one that persistently leads to cuts to humanitarian and development budgets for the African and Asian poor. Principle four, make explicit value for money calculations for capital and financial transactions. Principle five, and for F's sake, I've never heard Stephanie use that sort of language, fund foreign policy properly and then try to squeeze it into the aid budget. Principle six, drop the obsession with charging anything that moves to ODA. This is all down to the Treasury, which is rapidly becoming seen as a bit the bad guy in all this. How best to spend the budgets then? Well, and he does a plug for his recent book, uh, Gambling on Development, which I've reviewed and he's plugged on the blog. Um, spend generously on supporting those poorer countries that are trying to develop and, develop and grow. Point two, spend cautiously and much less in countries where elites don't care about development. But don't give up. Don't assume every health educational tax programme will make a difference. Even they can make things worse. Point three, always think carefully about politics and how you may inadvertently make politics worse as an aid community. Point four, use the same principles with climate finance. Point five, empower the development experts. They should make spending decisions and manage budgets inside FCDO, not the foreign policy wonks with little experience in spending even a penny. And bring back some of the actual development experts that FCDO has lost. There's been a kind of exodus of, of good staff from the FCDO. I don't call for a repeat of 0.7 uh, as we used to have. It didn't work. This is Stefan talking. I'm on the fence on this one. It created endless incentives for other departments and the Treasury to charge and charge to the aid budget, things that could be charged, but had nothing really to do with development. If we go for a new 0.7, it has to be a version two. 
which is not about accounting tricks, but is genuinely about spending in the spirit of the International Development Act. And even if we don't go for 0.7, UK development will be far more effective spending somewhat less than 0.7 really well with those committed to real development in charge. Uh, and rather than the original 0.7 with the accountants, vultures and political scavengers in charge. This is fierce language from Stefan. I thought it was quite powerful. Okay. Next post was me having a bit of fun down at uh, the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex, where I'm a visiting fellow. I give a lecture called Imagine There's No Money, It's Easy If You Try. Sorry to, apologies to John Lennon. Um, and I put up the PowerPoint. You're welcome to nick the slides. I don't believe in intellectual property. Um, and there's a YouTube video of the lecture if you want to if you want to waste an hour of your time. Um, but here I just wrote up some points that I learned both from writing the lecture and the Q and A. Um, and I'll keep this short because you can just go and read the blog. First on aid quantity, I've been trapped in a bit of a UK Scandinavian doom bubble, uh, and I got in touch with the incredibly helpful people at the OECD's Development Cooperation Directorate. And they provided me with the latest figures, um, and it shows that global aid hit an all-time high in 2021 of $180 billion, up 4.4% in real terms, in real terms from 2020. Now, that doesn't include recent news on aid cuts in the UK, Sweden and Norway, but still, that's quite a different narrative to the one we have in the UK. But So why talk about, imagine there's no money? Well, firstly, because a lot of this increase actually is one-off spending on COVID or, or, or will be on the Ukraine. Um, in June 2022, $46 billion had been committed by uh, DAC members in humanitarian, that's the OECD group, uh, in humanitarian and financial assistance. That won't all be counted against aid budgets. Not everybody's as rubbish as Britain, as I just pointed out, but some will. And this sum represents 25.7% of, so a quarter of total ODA in 2021. So reallocating budgets to even a portion of this amount would have a devastating impact on other recipient countries in crisis. So basically, everybody's talking about the diversion of aid from normal recipients in, you know, in Asia and Africa to the Ukraine response. And this is, that, that quote is from a, a recent, a different OECD paper. Second, efforts to improve the quality of aid are also struggling. The architecture, institutions and incentive systems of the aid budget do not welcome disruption, meaning that the pace of real change on things like localization or escaping from the dead hand of linear project thinking is very slow. And meanwhile, on the demand side, more and more countries are exiting from aid dependence, good, and or developing their domestic philanthropic giving. And I link to an interesting study on who gives in India, which estimates $3 billion a year. I'm sure that's an underestimate in the amount of philanthropic giving across India. So to the thought experiment, if aid flows from rich countries to poor ones falls to nothing or very little, what could the shape of international, what could be the shape of international cooperation? The good news here, I think, is that there are lots of ideas and experiences to fill the vacuum. And I'll give you just a few. Influencing. Sharing skills to influence the actions and policies of governments and other powerful players. So you try and influence the system rather than spend your way to success. Positive deviance. I haven't banged on about this for a while, but I still think it's a wonderful alternative to white saviorist project thinking. You look for the answers to a given problem that already appear in the system 
and help people learn from and spread them. Signposting. Which government or academic community is best placed to advise others on any of the numerous shared problems that defy north-south binaries? Tobacco control, obesity, inequality, alcohol, road traffic. They all kill far more people than malaria and um, they're not seen as development issues. But we could be signposting to say this, this government has done particularly well on tobacco control, go and talk to them. And there's still plenty of need for uh, action around global collective action problems from the climate emergency to tax evasion to migration. Next up was a plug for a new practical guide to adaptive management. Um, and this is from DT Global, which is the uh, consultant, the management consultant who I'm doing a bit of work for in Papua New Guinea, working with a friend of mine, Jane Lonsdale, who's absolutely brilliant at a, a practical adaptive manager. And she brings me in uh, to, to just bounce ideas off and so on. I'm a critical friend. And I think we're gonna have to do a podcast in PNG where I'm going in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, just to uh, discuss this idea of the critical friend role because it's kind of interesting. Um, anyway, they, uh, DT Global has just published an excellent uh, guidance note on adaptive management written by Jane Lonsdale. Um, and it's got a very cool cover and it's really worth reading. But a few, a few highlights. First, it just acknowledges that adaptive management is not always the answer. Adaptive management is not applicable in all programs and should not be undertaken lightly. It requires significant strategic and day-to-day -day management and therefore can be resource intensive, i.e. it costs more than just you know, standard management processes. There's some interesting stuff on applying adaptive management in big programs like this one in, P in, in PNG, which is about, uh, um, I think it's 87 million Australian dollars and it's on building community engagement. I don't worry, I'll blog all about that when I come back from my trip. Adaptive management has mainly been used as a whole program approach with varying success, often on medium-sized programs of up to around 25 million Australian dollars, 15 million US. However, it could be feasible to apply adaptive management to one or more components of a large-scale program if a complex, contentious and or political component requires it, and the program leadership can create sufficient autonomy and flexibility of systems, which is exactly what Jane's trying to do in, in PNG, and we'll see how it's going. A desire for full program, highly adaptive management is usually a decision at the design point of a program, which then needs to be followed through during the contract negotiation stage to ensure that program's technical team works closely with the corporate team to negotiate the flexibility and autonomy required. So you basically got to build it in from the beginning. You can't graft it on at the end. Um, the paper identifies four essential elements to adaptive management, flexibility, and responsiveness, so flexibility is the capacity to adjust and responsive, responsiveness is, so that's sort of internal quality and responsiveness is about engaging deeply with context and spotting when things are changing and then reacting to them. So you need a combination of those two. Purposive learning, so that's a constant process of review and reflection. Uh, and you test things and update the program, update your theory of change. And culture is about having a team that feels confident and empowered to work with these approaches, which includes having supportive ways of working in place with the client and trust across key relationships. So Jane's particularly good, I think, at establishing this culture. So it's gonna be interesting. She certainly did when I worked with her in Myanmar. And so we'll see how she's doing it in, in Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's got a useful spectrum on how these apply in non-adaptive, min minimally adaptive and highly adaptive programs. And it then digs deeper into each of these 
with a super helpful table comparing non-adaptive, minimal, minimal, very hard word to say, and highly adaptive programs across the four elements of adaptive management. It's all, it's just really nice and you can, somebody's already on Twitter saying, oh look, we could use this to start rating our programs in terms of which are more or less adaptive. So I think it's already showing that it could be quite practical, which would be great. Next up, the big boss, Danny Shuskandaraja, got in touch and said, would I, would I be able to write a post uh, about uh, the Egypt Climate Summit? And when your boss asks you, you kind of say yes. Luckily, Danny writes quite well, so it, it wasn't a big sacrifice. So Danny was writing about um, Rishi Sunak's belated appearance at the Egypt decision to attend the Egypt Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. After initially dithering on whether to attend the COP27 Climate Summit this week, Prime Minister Sunak seems to have packed his climate superhero costume for his trip to Sharm el-Sheikh. His speech was not short of promises to turn the UK into a clean energy superpower, language about a global mission for new jobs and clean growth, and a renewed commitment to provide millions of pounds worth of funding for climate adaptation. But when it came to the de defining issue of this COP, the Prime Minister's silence on loss and damage was deafening. Unlike Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, First Minister of Scotland, who this week announced £5 million of Scottish funding to tackle loss and damage caused by climate change in developing countries, Sunak chose not to commit. Perhaps the Prime Minister saw this as someone else's problem, or not worth spending UK taxpayer funds on. Perhaps he was deterred by the blistering criticism in some sections of the UK press. Number 10 could be forced to pay out aid cash to countries hit by global warming disasters, shouted one headline yesterday. And former Prime Minister Boris Johnson had already poured cold water on the idea of climate reparations a few hours ahead of Sunak's speech. Not only was Sunak's silence on loss and damage a missed opportunity for Britain to show moral leadership on climate justice, but it showed a misunderstanding of the politics and economics of climate change. Addressing loss and damage isn't about putting principles ahead of prosperity or prioritising the global ahead of the national. It is firmly in the UK's national interest and should be at the top of Sunak's priority list. The UK's current financial difficulties will be dwarfed by the devastating effects of continued climate inaction. Forecasts for losses to global GDP from unchecked climate change vary from 12% to 37% or even higher by 2100. For the UK, that figure is estimated at least 7.5 to be at least 7.4% of GDP by 2100. If Sunak chooses not to prioritise reducing greenhouse gas emissions and transitioning the UK to a low carbon economy, his strategy will be one of extreme economic risk. So far, the evidence suggests that if Sunak is to become a climate superhero, then we are definitely in the early stages of his origin story. But the current economic and energy crisis facing Britain should serve to spur the Prime Minister on. For while the costs of mitigating climate change are undeniable, the price of inaction will be infinitely greater. Then, next post. Uh, I think it was the last one. Yep. Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting hour this week, just chatting really, to two people from NORAD, the Norwegian Aid Agency, Nikolai Hegerton and Petter Schkevelent, and apologies if I've mispronounced their names. Um, they just got in touch to say they wanted to chat about the obstacles and challenges they're facing at NORAD. Um, and I love doing this and they just wanted to look for ideas from elsewhere, find out what other people are doing and thinking and talking about, and just, you know, 
shoot the breeze and this is great so the the main conversation was about you know why thinking and working politically uh, is struggling to get picked up mainstreamed I've written a lot about that on the blog so I didn't write about it on this post but some other things also came up so first is aid versus global public goods it's on everybody's mind at the moment look at what um, Stefan Durkin was saying earlier Norway is leading the way in the OECD and spending an ever larger portion of its aid money on things like climate change but the aid system is not really designed for these global goods. Um, so as well as starving aid worker cash, it's also not likely to be terribly effective in terms of working on global goods, as Stefan points out. So we discussed what if you formally separated them? So in Norway's case, sticking with 0.7% of gross national income on aid, and then adding another target like 0.3% for global public goods. That could allow them to evolve separately. Because work on GPGs, public goods, is highly unlikely to involve the same balance of activities as aid. For example, between direct project funding, leveraging other sources of cash, for example, private finance, convening conversations uh, across countries, knowledge exchange, influencing. And so if you let it off the aid leash, it could chart a new path. And one example, which I hadn't heard about, was the Norwegian Knowledge Bank which is already doing that knowledge exchange thing on things that Norway knows about, like fisheries and presumably oil and gas. Second point, there's a lot of fear in the system. This is a quote from, I think, Nikolai uh, uh, Hagerton. Aid is pretty uncontroversial in Norway, at least compared to the levels of polarization in the UK. But even so, there's a striking asymmetry between success, which nobody notices, and failure, which gets the newspapers shouting and worries people in parliament. And that makes aid people highly risk averse. So attempts to persuade those in charge using the language of the private sector where taking sensible or inspired risks is portrayed as entrepreneurial rather than political suicide have failed to gain traction. And part of that stuckness is a resistance to long-termism, which is weird because Norway has some amazing examples of long-term thinking, such as its sovereign wealth fund. So right even before it discovered oil, it said, it. Yeah, it was going to, or before it started drilling oil, it said it was going to put a big chunk of this into a national pension fund. And it's accumulated huge amounts of money in there. So it was a really long-termist thing. Governments committed to not just grab all the money and buy, buy votes or spend now. Why can't the aid system learn from or piggyback on such successes? And maybe we were talking about it, maybe the shallowness of political support is to blame. But at least a scan of long-termism in the Norwegian system might throw up ideas and narratives. And then finally from Nikolai, there are very interesting similarities. The Norwegian Pension Fund has investments in around 80 countries. It's an important part of Norway's international relations and branding. It has brought Norway as a small state into new domains. Norway is not just a humanitarian superpower, as it likes to claim, but also a financial great power. Yet the fund is governed quite differently. There is a broad political census that it needs to be insulated from political dynamics. It requires a long-term perspective and a high degree of predictability. Aid with its range of different goals and fragmented nature could really have benefited from the same kind of discipline. Such interesting conversations. I love my job sometimes. I'm sure I'm going to love it even more in PNG. Have a great weekend.